We are Baptists because there's no infant baptism in the New Testament. We're Baptists because there was no sprinkling or pouring ever used in the New Testament. When you meet up with a competent Presbyterian, the only way they can establish their infant baptism is to try to present their scheme for covenant salvation where circumcision equals baptism. Circumcision of the Old Testament equals baptism of the New Testament. Since they gave circumcision to children in the Old Testament or infants, eight-day-old infants, then we do the same thing in the New Testament. So that's their subject. Then for their mode of immersion, they go to Ezekiel chapter 36, where God made a prophecy through Ezekiel that He would sprinkle clean water upon Israel, referring to the Holy Ghost, and they get baptism out of the Old Testament. Now, there, isn't, there wasn't a prophet in the Old Testament that had the, the most vague, obscure clue about water baptism of the New Testament. Right. To go to the Old Testament shows that they're bankrupt on subject and mode about baptism. It's a New Testament ordinance, so why don't you show it to us established in the New Testament? We don't baptize infants because there's no infant ever touched in the New Testament for such a thing. John the Baptist and every Baptist that followed him would have repudiated the idea and would have been nauseated by the thought. And nor did they sprinkle or pour because every case that we can read about involves them going down into the water. We are Baptists because the Bible is Baptist. We're Bible Christians, meaning that what we see in the Bible, we believe it and follow it. We are Baptists because John was a Baptist, and that's what Jesus called him. We're Baptists because John only baptized believers. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. I hope you enjoyed reading it last night. I hope your children and you rejoiced at seeing how plain it is when we read the Bible. If a person were to sit down and simply read the New Testament to come up with what ordinance is taught in the New Testament that involves water, They would come up with baptism that would be by immersion of people that believed and repented of their sins. And it doesn't save. It would be so obvious if you just read the New Testament and you didn't have some denominational system that you were required to defend because of your ordination, as it is the case with most pastors. Which verse do you like in this chapter? For the moment, let's pick on verse 6. And were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew 3, 6. Does Matthew 3, 6 have two things to say about baptism? What does it say about the mode? When When we use the word mode, we mean how is baptism performed? Is the mode mentioned in Matthew 3, 6? It was in Jordan. Was it near Jordan? Was it of Jordan? Was it by Jordan? Was it from Jordan? Was it in Jordan? Oh, it's it's wonderful, this little prepositional phrase. If it was near Jordan, then they could stand by the, by the side of Jordan, like the Bob Jones University Art Gallery likes to present it, where John the Baptist takes a cup of water up and pours it over Jesus' head. That would be near Jordan. If it was of Jordan, then John would have visited Jesus in Nazareth of Galilee and brought himself a canteen of Jordan water. But it was in Jordan. What kind of people were baptized in Jordan according to Matthew 3, 6, that little tiny verse? What were they doing? Confessing their sins. Do infants confess their sins? No. Do young children intelligently confess their sins? No. Do young children really have an active conscience that understands their sinful, depraved nature and the temptations of the flesh and how they want to serve Christ and they're condemned without Him? No. Very few and very seldom, and if they were to be grilled, we would find out that their faith was severely lacking. 
when it comes to a real active conscience and the discipleship that's involved in following Jesus Christ. But that verse right there is so simple and so plain to us. We are baptized because John only baptized believers because they were confessing their sins and because he did it by immersion because it was in Jordan that he did it. Come over to Mark chapter 1 that has a corresponding passage to Matthew 3 and let's just revel in the fact of what we're about to do this afternoon. We're about to go to a place where there's much water. Mark chapter 1. It says in verse 5, And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. They went out to him. Why didn't he come to them? He could have come with a squirt gun and just shot them a little bit in each forehead. He could have come with a super soaker. He could have done anything he wanted to. And I am making fun of all other forms of baptism. They are ridiculous. They are blasphemous. They are contrary to Scripture. They are heretical and hilarious. Why don't you go online and look up the intrauterine devices for Roman Catholic women who are afraid of miscarrying their babies and want to baptize them before they're born or miscarried. You say, are there such things? Yeah, you can get pictures of them. That's how foolish Catholics are. And you know, while we're making fun of their foolish heresies, we have to say at the same time, if it weren't for the grace of God, there go I. There go we. It's ridiculous. You ought to read a Greek Orthodox baptismal description of their faith in baptism. You know, I showed you a picture of them dunking their babies three times, totally submerging them in that little clip I sent last night. But they also believe that if you have no other options, then moist air will do. Give me a mirror and I'll show you that I can make moist air right now. Ridiculous! Once you depart from the Word of God, where are you going to stop? If if we depart from the Word of God on any point of doctrine, where what will keep us from going to the logical extreme of insanity? Because we have departed from the Word of God, so we no longer have any parameters for our faith. Lord, we thank You for verses like this. Look at verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Jesus was baptized in Jordan. Now, this verse says something, and it says it in Matthew as well, if you read carefully. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. Do you know how far that was? to be baptized by a Baptist preacher, 60 miles. You say, well, I can go 60 miles in an hour in my car. Well, he didn't have a car. But he went 60 miles to get baptized by a Baptist preacher. And sometimes people have to go the distance. We heard about a martyr this morning that wanted to go the distance to be baptized by a Baptist preacher, but there wasn't one available for him. 60 miles to find a Baptist preacher and to be baptized in Jordan. Why was it important for him to go all the way to Jordan? Because that's where John was stationed. John was stationed at a place where there was enough water for immersion. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. There are two ways by which we prove our doctrine of baptism from the Bible. There is deductive reasoning by which you take general principles and apply them to individual cases. And the Bible has its general principles, like 1 Peter 3.21, which states the general rules of baptism, that it's a figure, that it doesn't put away sin, that it's the answer of a good conscience, and it shows the figure of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now that's got a lot of general principles in it. Then there's inductive reasoning, 
where we take every single case that's described in the New Testament and we put them all together and say, what rules of baptism would cover all cases? It doesn't matter whether you go deductive, inductive, you come to the same place, and when you put the two of them together, it's insurmountable evidence that the Bible is Baptist, and so we're Baptists. We don't believe the Bible because we're Baptists. We're Baptists because we believe the Bible, and the Bible is Baptist. You should you should go read and see their deductive arguments and their inductive reasoning about how they come up with infant sprinkling. You know, they don't use these passages. Look at John chapter 3 and verse 23. Look at this precious little verse of Scripture. And John also was baptizing in Anan near to Salem. Well, let's thank you, Lord, for telling us where he was baptizing and where it was near. Now, why was he baptizing there? Because there was much water there. Why is that in the Bible? Why does it say it that way? And they came and were baptized. They had to come to Him. He couldn't go to them. They had to come to Him. He couldn't go to them because He was at a place where there was much water. What do we mean by much water? Does it need to be 10 feet deep, Abigail? How about 2 feet deep? Does that Will that work? If you're not a shape pastor, then you want it 3 feet deep. I'm just giving you some information. The bigger the candidate for baptism... You want four feet. If it's a real big candidate for baptism, you'll take five. That's just the logistics of baptizing. You say, why would you say things like that from the pulpit? Why would the Bible have in John chapter 3 and verse 23 that there was much water there? Because they're trying to make a point that you have to have enough to get them under, but you can't have too much that you both drown. That, that is why John one twenty eight pop, pop back two pages to John one twenty eight and I know this is what is it going to be readily apparent to your eyes or mind, and I'm telling you, and you can go home and figure it out, but since John 3.23 was read first, look at 28. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. This was a ford where they crossed the Jordan River. A ford is exactly the depth of water you want in a large river. It's shallow enough that you can walk across, but it's not shoals where you've only got six inches of water. You can't baptize in six inches of water, but you can baptize in two feet or three feet that would be up to your waist in crossing over beyond Jordan. That's where John was stationed in the wilderness of Judea. We're thankful for these verses in the Bible and we trust them. He needed much water for his baptisms. That that is nonsensical if he could have brought a canteen or a squirt gun and just put a little bit on foreheads. Thank you, Lord, for writing the Bible the way that you did. We are Baptists because Jesus Christ was a Baptist. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 3 and look at Jesus Christ's baptism. We know that John was a Baptist because he was baptizing in Jordan and he was requiring them to confess their sins before they were baptized. No one was bringing infants to John the Baptist for him to baptize them by any mode. Verse 13, this is a wonderful passage of Scripture. Can you imagine these two cousins meeting up in this particular situation and John knowing the situation and Jesus knowing it and here's the resolution. John's the Baptist. John's the baptizer and Jesus comes to him. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. Remember? 60 miles. Praise the Lord. The Son of God goes 60 miles to get a Baptist preacher to baptize him. 
Then cometh Jesus from Galilee, that's the Sea of Galilee, to Jordan, unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. John didn't want to baptize Jesus. John wanted Jesus to baptize him. Wouldn't you have felt the same way if you were John the Baptist? And Jesus said, suffer it to be so now, John. I know the order of things and I know what you know. But baptize me that we can fulfill all righteousness. Were there any infants there to fulfill all righteousness? Did they sprinkle or pour? No, we're going to read in the next verses. They went down in the Jordan River just like John always took them down in the Jordan River. And that's how you fulfill all righteousness. <clears throat> you can't fulfill all righteousness as a Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, or Roman Catholic, or Greek Orthodox, or the rest of them. You can't fulfill all righteousness because all righteousness means you're keeping everything the Bible has to say about baptism. Right. Praise the Lord for all righteousness. That expression right there, to fulfill all righteousness. Did Jesus have to repent of his sins? Did Jesus have to confess his sins? No. But it was just to show all righteousness in justifying God that this ordinance was from heaven and should be followed. And it was of someone of faith that trusted in God and had trusted in God his whole life, and it was by immersion. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. He was down in the water in order for him to come up out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God was pleased with Jesus fulfilling all righteousness by being baptized in the baptism of repentance when he didn't need it. But it was to fulfill all righteousness as an example to the nation that this is what God is looking for from this generation. And so he did it. And God was pleased with his baptism. We believe that today God is going to be pleased with two that are going to be baptized because it's a matter of faith. The Bible says it. We're going to fulfill all righteousness by doing it the right way. And God will be pleased in heaven. You know, last Sunday, some of you were moved by Revelation chapter 5, which greatly comforted and provoked me and pleased me as your pastor. But when you read Revelation chapter 5 about him that sits upon the throne, and you go back to Revelation chapter 4 trying to find out more about the details of this being that sits on the throne, and there is no description given of him except a few gemstones like Jasper and Sardin and an emerald rainbow and a crystal sea in front of his throne, there is no description given of God because he's indescribable. He is the invisible God. But this great being that the whole universe revolves around, He's going to be pleased today. Yes, no. uh, That is nearly unbelievable. But it is so exciting. Because you get to give the answer of a good conscience toward God. The God of heaven is going to be pleased because you're going to go down in a watery grave like His Son went into an earthly grave for three days and three nights before He came up for our justification. We're Baptists because baptism is done with a person, not to a person. 
When we baptize, we do something with a person. We don't do something to them. You cannot baptize in Jordan by sprinkling or pouring, for that would be baptizing with Jordan or by Jordan or of Jordan. But we put them in Jordan because we're doing something with them, not with the water. It's a difference. We're Baptists because Presbyterians never sprinkle in a river. If you read some of their hallucinations about verses like John 3.23, that there was much water there, or the uh, eunuch out in the middle of the desert with Philip finding an oasis, and them arguing about how they just got out of the chariot and they went down there to get some water, as if a eunuch who was of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, would traverse a desert in a chariot without water. Hello? Anybody here that can figure that out? That they had quite a bit of water in that chariot? For their own survival and for the survival of the horses? But he said, see, here is water. How much water? Was there a cup sitting there from some angel? There was an oasis there. Praise the Lord. And you know, they'll make fun of events like that, that they just had to stop to use the water. Have you ever heard, read, or seen a Presbyterian baptism take place beside a river? No. They're all a bunch of hypocrites. If they believed what they said, if they believed what they argued, then they would have baptisms out by a river where they could just reach down and get some like John did for Jesus and like Philip did for the eunuch. But they don't do that because they don't believe that because they have set themselves against the Word of God. We love Matthew 3, 6 because it says they were confessing their sins. We come back to Matthew chapter 3 again, and let's read more about John and what he was expecting of those that were coming to his baptism. He said in verse 8, Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. In order to be baptized by John the Baptist, you had to repent. In order to repent sufficiently for him to accept it, you had to show some fruits that you had truly repented of your sins. That has to come before baptism. We believe, it's called believer's baptism. Baptists have made this short little expression called believer's baptism because you gotta believe first. And your believing has got to include some confessing of sins and some repenting to show that you have turned your life around. You're gonna follow Jesus Christ and live for Him. And John expected that. And so he knew that they hadn't truly repented. So he said, show me your repentance. Why are you out here? Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? See, John was baptizing in the generation preceding the destruction of Jerusalem, and he warns these particular Jewish leaders that had come out to him. Turn over to Luke chapter 7 with me. Luke chapter 7. I like the terminology in this particular passage. Luke chapter 7. Now John's going to say something pretty high and lofty about the first Baptist preacher. And that's first with a small f. Luke 7.28 For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. I like this particular passage because it says that true water baptism justifies God. These publicans and these sinners 
that heard John the Baptist preach and were baptized by him justified God. Now, we use the word justification as if, just as if we'd never sinned or just as if I had lived Christ's perfect life. But justification in this passage is used the way David used it in his confessional prayer of Psalm 51, which is the way that the Apostle Paul quoted it and used it in Romans chapter 3, and that is to declare that God is right. When we justify God, we declare that He is right, we are wrong. Because He is right and we are wrong, because He has given us His law and we have violated that law by sinning, we are going into the waters of baptism to show that we need Him we have, we have been forgiven. We're declaring our repentance of our sins and a Savior that has washed us from those sins. We're declaring that He is right. That's why there's repentance involved. When we repent of something, we're saying it's wrong. By repenting of what we've done, by saying what I've done is wrong, we're saying God is right who said that what we've done is wrong. And so they justified God. Baptism, and the one you're going to see in just a few minutes, justifies God. Because we're burying an old man under that water because God has said what that old man thinks, does, and says is unacceptable and it's wrong. And so by admitting that what we do is wrong, we're admitting that what God said is right and we're justifying Him. And so it says that in this place in verse 29, and all the people that heard Him and the publicans, tax collectors, despised group of people in Israel justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Because to be baptized by John, you had to bring forth fruits, meet for repentance, and show that you were repenting from your wicked ways. And how were your wicked ways identified? By God's Word. And God, by saying that your wicked ways were wrong, that you were repenting of, is set up and justified as being right. This couple that we're going to baptize shortly are going to declare that God is right. We're sinners, and without the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no hope of eternal life for us. We're burying our old man. We're burying the nature that rages within us in our flesh to rise to walk in newness of life. All of it justifying God and declaring that God is right. A baby doesn't have any participation at all in an event like this, to justify God by repentance, to justify God by the confession of their sins, to even understand that they're sinners, whether they underst- whether we were to lay upon them the legal aspect of sin, the vital nature of sin, the practicality of sin, they don't know any of that. This is justifying God. I love this expression here, but, but the Pharisees and lawyers playing around in the Word of God, looking to Ezekiel 36 for baptism, looking to the covenant with Abraham and circumcision given to him in Genesis chapter 17 for baptism, instead of coming to the new covenant and finding out that it's believers confessing their sins that are buried in water, but the Pharisees and lawyers, nitpickers about words that won't submit themselves to the Word of God, rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of Him. There's no reason that we need to repent of our sins and have this wild, woolly creature that's out here in the wilderness baptize us. We don't like his pulpit style. He didn't go to seminary. He didn't, he hasn't participated in the ministerial association. We're not going to let him dunk us underwater. Who gave him the authority to do this anyway? There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
John chapter 1. Oh, to get to justify God. James, would you baptize me this afternoon, please? We should love the doctrine of baptism. We should just love it. They get to justify God. God is right. I'm wrong. I needed a Savior. A Savior came. I'm going to show you, Lord, that you're right and I'm wrong by being buried in water like he was buried in the earth for me. That's what baptism is. We just don't want to run through the motions of it. In our church, I want all of you to understand it. I want our children to understand it. And when we get over there to that much water, I want those children to crowd right up to the edge of it. You don't need to fall in. There wouldn't be any harm if you did. But you don't need to because I want you to see the burial. The average Baptist baptistry is up at an angle that children can't ever see the burial. All they see is a head disappear up behind the choir loft. I, I love the way that we baptize where they can get there and see it. We're, I'm going to put them all the way down. If I leave her nose, if I leave Miss Stevie's nose up, we'll redo it. I'm not going to leave Miss Stevie's nose up. And I'm not making fun of baptism. It's a burial. Would we take anybody to a cemetery and leave them with their nose sticking out? Big toe? No. Lord, we love the doctrine of baptism. Acts chapter 8. Yes. Acts chapter 8. Did Jesus charge his apostles that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness and then shall the end come? What did Philip preach in the city of Samaria? He's in Samaria because Stephen has just been stoned to death and there was a great persecution raised against the church and they were all departed and scattered abroad from Jerusalem except the apostles that stayed at home. And Philip is one of the deacons from chapter 6 and he's now an evangelist because he's been there's no more widows to take care of in the same way in the city of Jerusalem. So he is out preaching the gospel in the city of Samaria. He was a man full of the Holy Ghost with great power and miracles. So he's out doing something about it. And you know, we can read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria, that's only down in altitude, not down south. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. The people with one accord, they were all united in giving heed unto those things which he spoke. So they heard the verbal presentation of the gospel. They heard it and they saw the miracles which he did. And it goes on to describe some of those miracles. And it describes Simon the sorcerer. Verse 12, And even though this city had been under the sway of this sorcerer named Simon, when they believed, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, They were baptized, both men and women. Now what can we learn from Acts chapter 8 and verse 12? Is believer's baptism a Bible doctrine? That you have to believe first. When they believed, when they believed, then they were baptized. When they were, when they believed, then they were baptized is what it teaches. And what did they believe? Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Who was baptized? Men, women, and children? They were baptized. Both men and women. How many are in the word both? Two. Both men and women. How many children and infants were baptized? None. Both men and women. All in your Bible. 
If you just read your Bible from Matthew 1.1 to Revelation 22.21, you'd come up with the Baptist doctrine. But why are we 5% of the Christians in the world? Because they have set themselves against the Word of God. Because in the days of the Apostle Paul, Paul said, there are many which corrupt the Word of God in his day. And that hasn't lessened since then. Acts chapter 8. Wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's come on over to verse 36. No, let's get back in verse 35. Does everybody know what passage of Scripture is being preached to this eunuch? Where was he reading in the Bible when Philip happened up on his chariot with the Lord's help? Isaiah 53. Would you like to meet someone sometime that's reading Isaiah 53 and you say to him, do you understand what you're reading? No, I need someone to guide me. Is this prophet Isaiah writing about himself or some other man? Could you handle that task? Oh, wouldn't that be ex- Would that be exciting? Amen. Philip looks and sees where he's, whoa, Isaiah 53. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. Is the prophet talking about himself or some other man? Philip opened his mouth and preached Jesus to him. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. Why would you turn anywhere else? Come on, sometimes the Bible is a little bit amusing. I'm not being foolish about it. The Lord, did the Lord arrange this well? The timing was perfect. Isaiah 53, I don't know if he's talking about himself or some other man. Will you help me? Then Philip opened his mouth, verbal communication of the gospel, which is preaching, and began the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You don't have to have a church to preach, do you? We're in a chariot. Ever heard of a phone booth church? This is a small church. It's in a, it's not a church. It's just a small group of people in a chariot, but one is publicly proclaiming Jesus Christ to this other man. It's teaching. It could be called teaching, but the Bible choice, the word right here is preaching for us to know that it's the verbal declaration of the truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 35 is just wonderful to read it over and over and think about it. Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. My dear brothers and sisters, we have got to open our mouths to ever share Jesus Christ with anyone. Yes, we can do it by text messaging and emails from time to time and website documents and Proverbs commentaries and things like that, but let's be ready to open our mouths and speak about the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And may the Lord bring us some eunuchs that want our help. And as they went on their way, now after hearing about Jesus, as they went on their way, They, speaking of the eunuch and Philip, came unto a certain water. Now to be, for it to be called a certain water means that it's a body of water that is there. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And you can ask, how did the eunuch know so much about baptism that it involved a body of water or much water? He had just come from Jerusalem where he had been to worship God. Now, there was things going on in Jerusalem, and they included the baptism of believers. It would have been known. It would have been spread throughout Jerusalem that there was this new cult that had risen. That's why they were persecuting it, that baptized. They baptized by immersion in large bodies of water. There had been three and a half years history of John the Baptist and then the disciples and apostles of Jesus Christ that had been baptizing. That was known. 
The eunuch knew it. The eunuch knew that to follow Jesus Christ, this new way called following Christ, or as it's going to be called in Acts chapter 11, being a Christian involves being buried in water, which takes more than just a little bit in a canteen. They're bouncing along. They've got a couple five-gallon tubs of water in that chariot or four-gallon tubs. We don't know how. They had to have enough that if anything happened to their chariot, they would not die out in the middle of the desert. They had water. But the eunuch did not say, Hey, I've got water right here. They came to a certain water, and he said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? So he has taken care of the mode himself by his understanding of what was being done in Jerusalem. And now he asks, do I qualify as a subject or a candidate for baptism? That's the question in every Bible that's sold in America today in verse 36. See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? The problem is that these false Bible versions today, like the NIV, the ESV, and the others, don't have verse 37. So there isn't an answer to the question. Now they may have it down in a footnote, but they have verse 36 and they have verse 38 and they don't have verse 37. And I've had the blessed privilege of standing in assemblies before where we've gone over the Bible Babel, where I've had, where I've called on men that are not comfortable with speaking in public to stand and read to the assembled congregation, Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. And a number of seconds go by, and I let those seconds go by for them to get a little more uncomfortable. Sir, please read us Acts 8.37. Eventually, he gets his courage up to say, I can't find it. Sir, can you see verse 38? Yes. Can you see verse 36? Yes. Read the verse in between. There isn't one. Why am I going through all this? Does it get you a little bit irritated? What they did to 1 Peter 3.21, did that irritate you a little? When they take away Acts 8.37, does that irritate you a little? Is Could you possibly construct a motive for wanting to get rid of Acts 8.37 if you were an infant baptizer? Because it's the answer to who qualifies for baptism. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That verse is missing and that verse is wonderful and we delight in that verse. And that's exactly what we're going to do today and that's what we want to do every time someone's baptized. We want them to believe with all their heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now how'd they do it? And he commanded the chariot to stand still. So we are still on the path that they weren't using water in the chariot. They had to have water outside the chariot. He commanded the chariot to stand still. Now watch this. I'm sure you did in reading last evening, but we want to go over it again for repetition so that you know where to go and what to find when you're dealing with somebody about the doctrine of baptism. And they, in this particular case, how many are there? Two. They, two, they went down both into the water. How many are in the word both? Two. How many in the word they in this context? Two. And they went down both. Do we need the word both there? Could it have said, and they went down into the water? And would we still know that Philip the Evangelist and the Ethiopian eunuch were down in the oasis? Would we still know it? Well, who put the word both in there? Almighty God, the Holy Spirit put it in there. For us to have by two witnesses 
the plural pronoun they, and the word both. And they went down both into the water. Both. You gotta be kidding me. You love the Bible. Amen. Both Philip and the eunuch. We knew that. And he baptized him. Because you gotta have both of them down there. That's why we don't have a dry pastor baptistry. They both went down there. So I'm gonna get wet too. It's a high privilege from the high king of heaven to get wet. I hope you love Acts 8.38. Philip could have gone down and brought up a little bit of water while that illustrious man with great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopian, sat in his chariot. He could have run down there, grabbed himself a cup full, come running back up and poured it over his head. But that man with great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, had just met a man with greater authority than he, the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he put the brakes on that chariot and got down out of that chariot and went down into that oasis. And he wanted Philip to stuff him underwater with his clothes on for the glory of the Lord Jesus that he had just met from Isaiah 53. Anyone else here want to be baptized this afternoon? It's a wonderful ordinance, and we can't go back. Let's just live out our baptisms, and let's be excited about the two that are doing it. And let's let's rise to walk in newness of life, and let's remember that our lives are hid with Christ in God, and that He's going to soon appear for us, and we're going to appear with Him. And it's all predicated in Paul's argument in Colossians 3 on the fact that we're risen with Christ in our baptisms. And when they were come up out of the water, so they were both down in the water, And they both came up out of the water. The Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. James and Stevie are going to go on their way rejoicing today according to the measure of their faith. We do not get baptized for feelings. We don't get baptized because of feelings. And we don't get baptized in order to get feelings. We get baptized by faith, for faith, in faith, and then the Lord blesses us for our obedience by faith with the feelings of joy. And that eunuch went on his way rejoicing. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. This was a man of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, but he had met the Lord Jesus Christ, the high king of heaven, and he was singing, Be Thou My Vision, as he went on back to Ethiopia because he had met the Lord. Matthew 3 and Acts chapter 8 are wonderful, aren't they? And even our children can understand them. There's lots more things that can be said about baptism, but I don't have time to say them today. When uh, Paul and Silas baptized a Philippian jailer, did they preach to him first? Does Does it say all that in Acts chapter 16? Yep. Does it say that it was a household baptism? Whenever Presbyterians find the word household baptism, they say, see, they had a nursery, and they pulled the babies out of the nursery and baptized them. But when you go read Acts chapter 16, it says that Paul and Silas preached the gospel to their entire family, their whole household, and they all believed. Amen. In every case in the New Testament, it says that. Every single case. Right. Wherever it doesn't say that, and it just says, They were baptized with their household. What can you know? That household didn't have a nursery at that time. Because in every case where it is described, 
There is no one that doesn't believe the gospel, whether it's Cornelius, whether it's Lydia, whether it's the, the Philippian jailer. And because we have deductive reasoning that teaches us that you have to be a believer because the Lord Jesus Christ commissioned His apostles to go and teach all nations, baptizing them. There is teaching that is done first before the baptizing is done. Throughout the New Testament, that is the order. That is why we do it the way we do it. It's all plain to him that understandeth. Nehemiah chapter 8 teaches us, and we thank you, Lord, for that. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.